0: Welcome to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. I'm Marissa Madansky, and today we're welcoming Sean Brooks and Steve Thrush to the show. Sean Brooks is the director, and Steve Thrush is the deputy director of the Citizen Clinic, a public interest cybersecurity clinic here at UC Berkeley. Established in 2015, the clinic supports politically vulnerable organizations' efforts to defend themselves against online threats and implement new policies and technical controls that enhance their cybersecurity. In this episode, Miranda Rutherford sits down with Sean and Steve to learn more about the Citizen Clinic, their objectives, and the projects they've taken on.
1: So thank you both for coming today. Uh, We just want to start off with uh, talking a bit about what the iSchool is for um, those of our listeners who aren't Berkeley students or faculty.
2: Yeah, so the School of Information, it's the... uh... We call the intersection of people and technology. And really, it's a multidisciplinary uh, program. They house a master's program, Uh, they have an online master's in data science, and now they have an online master's in cybersecurity, and they have a PhD program in information science. And really, it's to prepare um, technologists in a variety of roles from like uh, program management to UX research to data science. Uh, and so it's, it's all housed there, and there's a lot of discussion about like, you know, the intersection of the ethics and really a lot of you know, so, social studies and, uh, and various other
1: you know,
2: uh, aspects of law and policy.
1: And how did both of your backgrounds lead you to the iSchool?
2: So I actually, uh, I ended up at the iSchool when I was looking for a master's program uh, specifically for uh, information, communications technologies, and international development. And uh, there's a certificate program, and there's professors at the School of Information that really uh, uh, touch on those topics, and I was drawn to like this uh, inter disciplinary research that was being done at the School of Information that really spreads across Berkeley, and they have centers like the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, where
3: we both now work. Um, I've been in the cybersecurity field for about 10 years without being really an engineer or a lawyer, uh, so it's really a perfect fit for me. So was, <laughs> the I came specifically to the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity uh, out of work uh, at a, a agency within the U.S. Department of Commerce called NIST. Um, I came specifically to work as a research fellow on understanding the state of the cybersecurity technical assistance space. Um, CLTC had an inclination that they wanted to do something like this clinic, um, but needed a more uh, rigorous foundation upon which to build that idea. And so I initially came to CLTC um, With sort of a research mission to understand the space, and what the gaps are, and how uh, CLTC could make a meaningful difference in the space, um, and then have continued my appointment there to to work on the clinic.
1: So, could you tell us a little bit about what exactly the Citizen Clinic is and what it does?
3: Uh, the Citizen Clinic is a public interest cybersecurity clinic. Um, we fashioned the clinic off of Experiential learning models, primarily the law school, law clinic model, uh, but also looking at experiential education in um, medical schools uh, and other disciplines like uh, the more cap- common capstone programs in public policy programs and in programs like the iSchool, uh, where students are able to take on a practical set of experiences working with a real organization as a client, um, to understand the realities of working in this space. Um, As I mentioned, CLTC supported uh, about a year of research looking into understanding how technical assistance works in cybersecurity, um, and specifically how cybersecurity support for politically vulnerable organizations works, so that's media organizations, rights defenders nonprofits that are doing work that is in sort of a political minority or is targeted for political purposes um, and there's a the, the very short summary of that work is that there's a ton of good work going on but it's concentrated specifically in the emergency assistance space. So an organization has been attacked uh, and then a group of volunteers or another nonprofit that focuses on emergency assistance will um, come in and help understand the attack, recover from the attack, and get the organization set up to um, uh, return to normalcy. Um, But where we saw a lot of the gaps was sort of longer-term capacity building, who's helping these organizations grow their institutional capability to improve cybersecurity long-term. There were a couple of reasons behind that. One was that there's just not that many bodies in the space. There's maybe 30 to 50 people globally doing this work at a very high level. Um, Most of those folks are very skilled at what they do, but it's just not enough when we consider the scope of the problem is at some sense global civil society. Uh, So there's this sort of workforce problem where we need to get more people into this space. there's also, again, a concentration of that expertise on being reactive and responding to emergencies, which is uh, natural, given the fact that that's where sort of the most um, potent need is. Um but that doesn't necessarily work for students in a learning environment. Um, you know, you want students to be able to uh, be able to make mistakes uh, and learn from those mistakes and have sort of the uh, institutional scaffolding to support a learning process, while at the same time providing high quality cybersecurity services to organizations. So that's really why we focused on capacity building. So the clinic, uh, in short, is an opportunity to expand the number of people working in the sort of civil society cybersecurity space, as well as add something to that ecosystem that we think is lacking in the form of
1: What kind of threats do you see nonprofits facing? Um,
3: I think sort of the general threat landscape um, is not all that different from sort of the threats that large organizations face. Um, the challenges are twofold. One is that their institutional ability to manage those risks is much lower than like a large private company or a government agency, and also the asymmetry. Uh, of their capabilities as compared to who their threat actors are. So, again, uh, government adversaries or hate groups or technically sophisticated individuals um, is really, really stark. And so, um, you know, phishing, malware attacks, denial of service attacks, um, online harassment, uh, these are all things that most large organizations deal with now. Um, But the ability for their adversaries to um, get a lot of mileage out of relatively low sophistication attacks uh, is uh, really significant because these are resource-constrained organizations that we're working with. Um, They don't always have up-to-date software. Uh, Their infrastructure may be aging or not well-maintained. So there's a lot of opportunities for compromise, both from a technical level and from a uh, sort of social engineering Fraud or scam level, uh, and in that, it, it, and via those attacks, we actually see um, one major difference about this community and, and in so far which is you can call it a community, um, where the social engineering deployed by their adversaries adversaries is much more sophisticated than you see individuals being tried, you know, it's not the normal phishing email that you and I would receive just in the normal course of events. It's often even more sophisticated than um, a lot of the phishing emails you see going to large private companies. Uh, They're often very, very tailored, so spear phishing, uh, very, very tailored attacks to individuals um, involving a lot of personal information. Uh, There's a lot of, like, well-designed, Landing sites for those phishing attacks. So when you click the link in the email, it takes you to a site. It looks like a Google login page. Uh, it's very well designed user interface. Um, none of these things are technically very sophisticated, but the experience of the um, the fraud is 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 much more robust. And that's because oftentimes these are um, intelligence agencies or national security bodies who are not trying to um it's not about getting financial resources or money out of this organization it's about achieving a political end uh and in that way their motivation is very different than sort of the cyber crime that most people experience in their day-to-day life on the internet
2: yeah i would also add to that the um the risks that these organizations are also taking uh, can be a little bit different than what you think of, like in, in enterprise situations. So, for instance, if you're a journalist, uh, you may be already attuned to like getting a, just a call out from someone who needs help or is a you know a, a whistleblower, and just they send documents to you, and uh, you want to. Help you want to be in a position where you can you know be able to tell what's true or not. But sometimes that that button to you know work with the at-risk communities that you know these NGOs are working with is is really what is is being pushed as well. Um, what we're seeing also recently is the the uptick in disinformation. So whereas um, I mean we still see it, whereas information. In certain countries, can be you know censored or access to information can be blocked off. Um, we're seeing that some countries and states prefer instead to you know instead of doing something that could be you know attributed fairly easy to like the, the powers that control the infrastructure, we just see them over amplifying counter messaging so you have you know in, instead of shutting down the internet we can deploy uh, an army of bots or an army of trolls uh, sometimes they they're paid humans that manage you know ten to hundred accounts each and really they can target messaging that not just targets the organization but it can be the range from even the domain so like if you think of like environmentalism at, at large, or it can be all the way targeted to you know a specific individual. Um, in this case, we're also seeing a lot of these uh, information campaigns still t- stem from um, you know maybe basic security practice not being followed. In that you know it could be uh, you know. First, an account gets breached, and, and you find some emails from that organization to uh, you know one of their counterparts that they're helping, and you can take that information, put it out of context, and uh, you know start tweeting or you know put it on various social media channels to uh, to really amplify this counter narrative against an organization. We obviously saw that uh, in, in the United States, you know, uh, in in certain events as well. I would add to that that.
3: The the types of attacks that we're seeing again, none of the things that we've described right now are big, scary, technically sophisticated cyber attacks. Um, there is a lot of news coverage about that. I mean, certainly um, the incredible work that organizations like Citizen Lab have done to uh, illuminate how some governments have used very sophisticated cyber weapons against journalists or civil society organizations, and using what are called zero-day attacks. For previously unknown vulnerabilities um, that can cost millions of dollars uh, to research and deploy, um, you know, these things are capture a lot of people's imagination about this space. And certainly when we talk to uh, nonprofits and other members of civil society about their concerns, um, you know, there's a lot of fear about that, but the vast majority of attacks on civil society, as far as we understand them um, don't look like that. It's not necessary. To use such a sophisticated uh, method against most organizations uh, in civil society, because they're frankly, they don't have a level of security that would warrant such an expensive attack. Um, so I think that's one of the things that is is challenging. Um, I spoke to um, a security researcher and a, a gentleman who's done a lot of work in this space for many years, uh, and he spoke about uh, a problem with many nonprofits that he'd worked with about sort of a security nihilism issue. About like, well, if this kind of thing is out there, what can we possibly do to defend against that? We've got this tiny budget. We don't have an IT person who's full time. You know, we have a volunteer. Or we have a you know a, a consultant that we hire every once in a while. What could we possibly do to defend against this? Um, and the the substance of the work that our students do is uh, much more low level. It's much more about let's find the most meaningful small steps that we can take in working with this client in one semester and then set up that client for future engagements over many semesters um, to really build a foundation of security that raises the cost substantially for attackers um, because that stuff makes a real difference. Uh, And if we assume that, not every government attacker is gonna be wanting to drop million dollar zero days on every single nonprofit that they wanna surveil. Um, there is a significant, significant amount of long-term gains that can be made here by improving sort of the basic security hygiene in a way that is uh, meaningful to our client organizations uh, and aligned well with the risks that most times, they're very knowledgeable. That they face. They know who their adversaries are, um, they know what types of attacks they're worried about. Uh, we can just help them formalize some of that language and work with the students to um, match sort of mitigating security controls, techniques, and policies to those risks that they already know about.
1: So what are some of these small steps that um, the either the organizations that you work with or other organizations can take to improve their cybersecurity? So
3: a large portion of the work that we have our students do is assessment. Um, because, you know, there's a whole laundry list of security controls and policies that any organization could deploy to improve their cybersecurity but when we talk about our clients We're talking about organizations who again don't necessarily have full-time technical staff don't have a lot of money to push towards this Um, so there's uh, Sustainability and efficiency questions here uh, And the security controls we want to focus on have to be meaningful and understood by our clients uh, as relevant to their context, and most importantly, not interfere with like their primary mission that they're there to do. Uh, if you're working with uh, a group of journalists and you tell them, well, you're worried about phishing attacks, so you should have this uh, authentication procedure, and that makes it really in any way harder for them to communicate with sources. They're not going to use that technique, you know. So a lot of the work that we have our students do up front is a lot of working with the clients and background research to understand the context, uh, so that when they make recommendations, uh, they're well attuned to how our client organizations operate on a day-to-day basis. Um, That said, there is sort of a um, set of security practices and controls that we see sort of more commonly needed by organizations. Things like enabling automatic updates, uh, where it's appropriate moving from like an old legacy email system to a more modern cloud-based email system. Uh, Often we have clients who are aware of techniques like multi-factor authentication, but don't have them set up or certainly don't have them set up across all of their employees and, and their most important accounts, not just for work, but their personal accounts as well. Um, so we see a lot of common needs, but then we have more contextualized needs from some organizations where um, maybe they're looking at buying a new set of devices, and they don't know what devices to buy, uh, and they don't know uh, what things they should do in the setup phase to avoid security issues down the road. So. Uh, we had students help you know build a uh, a migration guide for okay if you're getting rid of these old devices this is what you have to do to purge them of data and migrate data and if you're getting these new devices these are the settings that you want to initially deploy so that you have less security burden down the road so uh, the work of the students is again highly contextualized to the client but at the same time there are um, a number of things that the students do that are um, common across many of the clients
2: I just want to add that the uh, other thing that we're doing is, like, we're hoping that the clients, you know, come back to us across semesters, over time, in between semesters. So, I mean, not only are we just, you know, deploying some mitigations now, but we're also building a a longer-term relationship. Um, and, And specifically, some of the clients are those that are in a community where they're position to help other clients, you know, or uh, sorry, like other organizations in their domain. So if we can, you know, help them be just like this kind of force multiplier, that's really the position that we want to be in. So it's like, okay, well, here's, okay, look after after we make sure you have an appropriate level of multi-factor authentication in your organization let's see like how can we help this knowledge transfer to other organizations in your space and we, we hope that's that's where we're also building capacity
1: steve
3: raises a really really good point which is that as much contextual assessment as we might have our students do and that contextual assessment is supported by the fact that bring in students from all over the university, not just engineering students or law students, but public policy students. Um, we've been t- talking more with some journalism students. We, we really want, you know, anybody from UC Berkeley who has an interest in cybersecurity to apply because, you know, there's really... Uh, I, I can't think of a single skill set that wouldn't in some way be useful in this space just because of the the interdisciplinary nature of the challenges. Um, but we're still situated in northern california in berkeley um we don't know intimately the context of all the organizations that we work with and we're certainly not like integrated members of the communities um that in some instances we build partnerships with and it's really important for us to uh, be aware of that Um, and not sort of parachute in with all the answers because we frankly don't have the answers uh, in most cases. It's a collaborative process through which we want to work with our client organizations. And so uh, we're still figuring out who makes an ideal client. But as Steve said, a lot of the organizations that we're looking to work with um, are well-established within a community of interest already um, and are positioned to uh, spread... Knowledge that they are developing with us and with other uh, partner organizations about positive cybersecurity practice. Uh, so they can really bring the core context of the issues and um, the populations affected with them. And if we can support, um, you know, in our small way, uh, growth of the cybersecurity knowledge of that community, um, that's really what we want to do. We don't want to, you know, show up and try and give everybody the same five tools and uh, you know tell folks that, that we have the answers because um, without appreciation for that context and the role of the uh, our client organizations within their broader communities um, I don't think we can possibly hope to overcome sort of the larger questions of capacity building within civil society which needs to be able to embrace cybersecurity an organizational management process, uh, much as civil society has improved its ability to manage its budgets and its use of technology. Civil society is an incredible user of technology um, and has made gains in its various mission spaces uh, because of the internet and connected technologies um, in ways that would never have been possible without that technology, but... um, we we want to make sure that our client organizations are are continuing to proliferate cybersecurity knowledge beyond their engagement with us, because honestly, they're the ones who are going to be able to raise the capacity of their communities, not our individuals.
1: So, for organizations that aren't lucky enough to be your client, uh, what resources or first steps do you recommend that they take in improving their cybersecurity? Well as I
3: mentioned there's there's a couple of sort of standard things that are common amongst or common needs amongst most organizations, certainly not all. Um, you know one thing that I would say as a first step is understand what your risk really looks like. Um, you know there's you could throw out some technical things for most organizations, but particularly for nonprofits where you know every dollar spent on, Technology or cybersecurity is a dollar not spent on something programmatic. Um, so really understand and take some time to to think through. Like, what are you worried about? Are you worried about a government surveillance program? Are you worried about hate groups? Are you worried about um, normal cyber crime? And sort of focus your effort based on who that attacker is. And this is sort of the language of risk management common in the government and the private sector. Um, but it's processes that take time. Um, it's not necessarily processes that I think are prohibitively expensive to talk through. Um, there are some tools available out there about some sort of low level, uh, risk management practices for, for nonprofits. I believe EFF has written, um, some blog posts about that. Um, there, but, but by thinking about that, you can think about, well, where's, where are the security controls that are really worth our time? Um, in general, things like multi-factor authentication, software updates, uh, potentially migrating um, shared resources to cloud storage and email uh, to to cloud services, those are often the best and cheapest solutions for many nonprofits. But for example, if you're a nonprofit operating in a country where there's a lot of government surveillance of email and... Um, It's known that uh, large cloud-based email providers regularly comply with government requests for access to email. Um, Moving to a cloud-based service like Gmail or Office 365 might actually not be the safest for you. That said, for the vast majority of organizations that we've worked with and talked about, those services are both affordable and provide more security than many others. And so it's it's understanding sort of that like what creates the set of priorities for your organizations because you're understanding who your threat actors are um is a really important first step.
1: And finally, what would you say is the number one thing that our listeners can do individually to improve their cybersecurity?
2: Uh, I I would definitely say turn on multi-factor authentication on your Facebook accounts, your Twitter accounts. Um, think about um, that threat modeling exercise. Um, go to um, EFF's website, uh, Surveillance Self Defense. Uh, plug our, <laughs> our friends over at EFF. Um, walk yourself through a threat m- modeling exercise. The number one thing you're probably find yourself wanting to do is turning on a multi-factor authentication, but, uh, pull disk encryption. That's, that could be a, a, a default, you know, depending on what devices y- you have as well. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's my number one recommendation. Well, only slightly one. Mine is
3: software updates. Like let your computer fully reboot more than once every four months, um, turn on automatic updates. Uh, I know sometimes like the update cycle can be a annoying, and B sometimes you start up a program the interface is completely changed without warning and that's really frustrating. What is more frustrating is losing all of your data. <laughs> um, you know, I promise you uh, that like you would rather deal with a new interface because some software uh, developer that you rely on has changed it than like a ransomware attack. Um, you know those. Everybody makes mistakes online. I've made plenty of <laughs> mistakes online. You click on the wrong thing. You open the thing. You're distracted. You're doing something else. Like we, we, we all do this. The best cybersecurity experts in the world make mistakes. I think the best way that you can protect yourself is by making sure that the really common exploits that our authors write to are not present on your computer. And uh, to Steve's point, like having things like multi-factor authentication. It's not really about um, preventing anybody from trying to attack you it's making their job a whole lot and so um, you know there, you know there are you know multi-factor authentication is not the easiest thing in the world for everybody to set up it's easier for some services than others and if you lose those backup codes it can be a real a real problem um, but that said uh, I think these are level of effort things that um, we need to start accepting um, much like we accept to a certain extent that we we lock our doors and we lock our cars, not because that makes it impossible to break into our houses or break into our cars. People can still break windows. Um, but it, it raises the sticks for attackers and puts you that much farther ahead of sort of the crowd. And, um, you know, I am not of the belief that Security needs to be in the hands of individuals all the time. I think we put too much emphasis on like oh Individuals need to take more responsibility for this stuff. I think that's not really fair <laughs> Like We're supposed to be writing software for humans and if we're not writing security for humans uh, That's not really fair people shouldn't have to think about security every single time they use a computer and um, but there are some basic things that, if you add them into your basic lifestyle habits, it puts you pretty far ahead of the pack. Um, and so, looking for those little sort of things, I think, is the most important.
2: And I just want to say that if you want to learn
3: all about this,
2: do look at enrolling into our citizen clinic practicum. Uh, we are offering it in the spring, uh, and hopefully, if you know. Uh, Hopefully, also in the in the fall of next year as well. If if you're not able to make it into the spring class, but uh, really these these debates and these topics are what we go in depth into the into the class. Specifically, if you're a law student, you know there's a wealth of you know uh, contribution that, that you can offer us from you know, understanding data protection laws to cyber crime laws that vary dramatically from country and context.
1: Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you today.
0: Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Miranda Rutherford and the rest of the team at the Berkeley Technology Law Journal. We want to give a special thanks to today's guests, Steve and Sean from the Citizen Clinic. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a show, please contact our editor at miranda.rutherford at berkeley.edu. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be up to date. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. Don't get legal advice from podcasts. Talk to a lawyer.